0: The Beaux Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio.
1: To begin this interview, my name's Gordon Lewis, I have a blog called Shutterfinger, which anyone can easily find by just googling it, Shutterfinger, it'll show up. And I am interviewing Alain Briot, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You, you did very well, I'm
0: impressed, yes.
1: <laughs> why, why, thank you very much. So for the benefit of uh, those who may be unfamiliar with uh, who you are and uh, your are back old, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm interviewing you because you wrote a book called Marketing Fine Art Photography, and uh, that's a particular interest of mine. I, I like to think that I produce fine art photography. I have something of a background in uh, marketing and marketing communications. I used to do that in a previous career. But I have to uh, admit, I I, I don't know all I'd like to know about marketing fine art photography. So since you've written this book, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you came to write this and why you feel you're uh, qualified to write on this subject?
0: Well, I think, let's start with the qualification. I'm qualified because I went from, you know, basically knowing nothing about marketing to doing very well selling fine art photography. By attending the school of hard knocks, that's the way I like to put it, you know. (laughs) Basically, I never took a business course. I went to school all the way to a PhD. Um, By the time I was done with school and I decided to quit, you know, academia, I was 40. I had never made a dollar and I had never taken a business course. And by the time I started my business... I had obviously a problem because I really did not know how to sell my work. I was like every artist in the world that begins, which is we do this because of passion. We don't do it because we want to make an income. That's not the first motivation. I always tell people that, you know, let's say you sell dark food and and I'm just using one example. It's probably more for business than for passion. You know, and I'm not saying that you can't do dark food without a passion, but probably it's not as personal than creating fine art, you know. It is a very, very different approach, you know? And I say that because I have a friend who has a, uh, a pet store where he sells, you know, it's a supermarket, you know, it's one of his giant pet stores. We sell everything and anything about pets. And I'm sure that he loves pets, but it's primarily a business decision. Eventually he's gonna retire, sell the store, and move on to probably, you know, taking vacation in Cancun and traveling around the world. You take an artist, artists never retire. Somebody asked me, when do you retire? And I looked at them and I said, well, why should I retire? I love what I do. <laughs> I don't do this because I want to do you know a career and then retire and, and travel around the world. I'm doing my dream right now. I don't have to retire, and I don't plan to ever retire. It's, you know, I think that first of all, with art, there is this concept that our art is tied to our lives, but there's also the financial reality, which is most artists don't make enough money to actually retire.
1: What you're saying is that you were trying to sell your art, and uh, you were not initially successful?
0: Well, initially, I was not successful, no, because I had no concept of marketing. You know, I, my concept of marketing... What is marketing? Well, marketing is promotion. And and it really doesn't matter if you're selling your work or if you don't sell your work today. Because you have to make people aware of what you're doing in order to simply attract people to a show, for example. Before you can even sell something, you have to have people going through the door. And, you know, again, just because you have beautiful artwork does not mean that people are going to come. They have to have a better reason than that. There has to be some excitement. Without excitement, nothing happens, you know and uh, you have to generate interest and so on. No, I was totally unsuccessful in the beginning. I spent the first uh, three, four years doing this, uh, basically not even breaking even, making a loss, basically writing it as a loss. And as you know, in business, you can only write off things as a laugh for so long, right? Then eventually you have to make a profit. Right. And so you, you run into a problem, you know, and people don't realize that. They're like, well, I'm just going to break even. Well, first of all, you can't break even. <laughs> you know, you're always going to make a penny <laughs> more or a penny less than breaking even to, to dramatize the situation. The fact is, you're always going to either make money or lose money. You know, I've never broken even. And I don't think that even anybody does. It's a dream. The second thing is, you know, you, you can't just write a loss for 20 years. You've got to ride a loss for so long and then eventually there is regulations and you've got to make a profit. And at that point, if you can't make a profit, you've got to get out of business. And that's sort of what happened And, of to course, me. you're
1: talking from the perspective of someone who's trying to make a living at this, not just as a sideline.
0: Well, I- but, you know, is there really a difference? Can you really run a business as as a hobby, right? That's a good question, you know. I found out in my case that it's not possible. And I tell my students, you know, if you're not planning to do this, if you don't need the money, save yourself a lot of grief, don't do it. Because the amount of money that you have to spend in order to sell your work means that you've got to generate a profit. You know, that's a a serious problem that people encounter. They don't realize that it costs money to make money. I get what you're saying. If, let's say, you sell your work at shows, let's say you even run a small gallery or even in your home, you need permits, you need licenses, you need insurance, you, you're going to have to pay sales tax, you're going to have to buy supplies, you're going to have to buy displays, you're going to have to buy all sort of things. You know, there is gas, there is cost. If you tally it up, which most people don't, but I strongly recommend to anybody listening that you just take a piece of paper and you tally up. The cost of doing business, not the income that you're making, not the sale of your work, just the cost of doing business, rental space, insurance, car insurance, gas money, food money, hotel money, licenses, fees, you know, you name it, all of uh, the things you have to spend, you don't realize that you've actually spent a sizable amount of money. And at that point, well, it's not a Well, let ha-
1: me ask this. Uh, suppose I say, well, that doesn't apply to me because, uh, you know, I've got a website and mm-hmm. uh, I just have my uh, photographs for d- uh, on display on my website and people can buy them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is that marketing? Is well, why, why, why is there such a high cost associated with that?
0: Well, you're right. I mean, a web, you can rent a one-year web space for maybe $100, $200, you know, uh, and you're done. But let me ask you this question. Have you tried? And if you have tried, have you sold anything? <laughs> OK, you see my point. Ask because that question for a reason. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because um, when I teach marketing. Oh, it's more than promotion. It's more, I mean, because you
1: can say, well, I'm putting my photographs up on a website, so that's promoting it, right? You well, mean more than that, don't you?
0: <laughs> Let me just finish what I was doing, and I'll answer that question afterwards. The first thing that I was going to say is I teach marketing extensively you know, through one on one consulting and mentoring. And one of the things that I help my students with very early on is give them an idea of what is the easiest way to sell their work and what is the hardest way of selling their work okay and i think that it's fair to say that why make things harder than necessary right and what happens is what most people want which is selling on the web as you mentioned you know because it has no personal involvement in a way it is completely anonymous you, you can turn on your computer and see if you made any sales and you don't have to be physically involved you can go play golf while your work is selling i mean there's all sort the of very good reasons if there's low cost you know you don't need all of the expenses that you would need otherwise the problem is that the web is the hardest way to sell your fine artwork that's the problem that's why i said immediately after you asked me that question i said did you try and did you sell because most people try and most people don't sell that is it is the hardest way it is hard because you're not there it is attractive because you don't have to be physically present, but that makes it also very, very hard, because one of the first things or one of the most powerful motivations to buy art for a buying audience is meeting the artist in person. Of course, you can't do that on the Internet. So that answers your question. The second question, which is, uh, isn't that promotion, putting your work on the web? Well, yes, it is promotion, but if nobody's listening, then it falls flat on its face. It, it serves no purpose. Let me give you an, an absurd example, you know, let's say you write a promotional letter, you know, what we call copy, you know, you write a copy promoting your work, and you read that copy to yourself in a room where there's nobody. That is promotion, but nobody's listening, so it doesn't serve a purpose, it falls flat on its face.
1: Right, <coughs> uh, yes. And. Uh, I mean, I was asking those questions in a provocative way because. Oh, that's uh, fine. Yeah, I, I don't,
0: I don't mind. For answers. Yeah, I don't mind being provoked. I mean, obviously, I'm putting myself out there, you know, and I'm not against a good controversy and and all of that, you know. I'm I'm totally open to it. But the fact is that what I'm pointing out to is that what you're saying is very similar to what I hear all the time, and that is people follow intuition to make sense of uh, marketing, and unfortunately a lot of these things are counterintuitive. You know, the internet is one of them. Uh, Intuition would be, well, you know, there's no cost, so I'm going to make a few sales. Yeah, but the fact is, most people sell nothing on the internet.
1: Right, yes, I I, I agree with that, and that's been my experience. Um, So what is the market for fine art photography? I mean, who are you marketing to?
0: Well, the first thing is you've got to define what you want to sell. Because saying that you're selling fine art photography, It's totally comparable to selling cars. If you say, well, what is the market for cars? How do you sell cars? Obviously, the market is everybody that needs transportation, which in the US is just about the whole of the population. But that doesn't really define what we are doing because there are cars such as the Nissan Versa, which are $9,000, and then you can buy a Rolls Royce for you know, a quarter or half million dollars. So, you have to define your audience, right? You have to define, with cars, you have to define the buying power, you know, whether people are looking for basic transportation, which might mean used cars, or whether they are looking for extremely high-end transportation, which might mean one of the luxury brands. And then, of course, you have to define also the provenance of the cars. There is a number of people who want US-made cars. They will buy a car made in Detroit or in in the US. Other people like imports, some people like sports cars, other people like luxury sedans, you know, on and on and on. The same applies to photography. There is absolutely no difference in regards to that. You know, we have to define the audience. And so the first thing we find out photography is, what are you selling? Are you selling portraits? Are you selling pet photography? Are you selling flower close-ups? Are you selling landscapes? Are you selling photographs of cars? I mean, so that's the first thing, right? And that's gonna define an audience. And then from there, there is the price point, you know. Uh, do you want to sell to an audience that looks for the cheapest artwork out there, or do you want to sell to an audience that's looking for the finest artwork out there, which would be comparable to a luxury car? And in that case, you know, that audience is buying on the basis of the product and the uniqueness of it, and not so much, you know, the price. Uh, so th- these are decisions. But
1: the you you need to yeah. do some research Because, um, you know, uh, again, to go back to that original question, what is marketing, I think you'd agree that part of it is promotion, but the key is finding uh, a market for your work and connecting that market. In other words, you've got something. Who's going to buy it? How do you get the word out to them and, and get it in a way that that motivates them to buy? Would you agree?
0: Uh, to some extent, I mean, the reason why I say that marketing is promotion is because promotion is everything. Promotion is everything. You know, you have to make people aware of what you have before they can buy it. If you have the most beautiful artwork in the world, and it has been done to the highest standards in the world, in other words, you have created something totally unique, fantastic. Uh, But nobody knows about it. You're not going to sell it. And so, in a sense, you may have defined a perfect audience. You may have defined a perfect product. It starts with promoting. You have to make it known to your audience, to the people out there. Uh, The the second thing, you know, you made a very interesting statement. You said, you know, you've created something. Now you have to find the audience. Art is the only product that I know of in which we create the product before we find the audience. Ah, And that is a tremendous problem. And so one of the decisions that artists have to make is, is that really the way to do it? And I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying sell your soul, find what people want and cater to their needs. But I'm saying, let's just question it for a second. Let's say I made a car in my garage and I made this car exactly the way I want it. And then I go out and I say, who wants to buy it? And I promote it. I might find nobody. Right. I might make it in such a way that it pleases only me, Right, for many reasons, you know. There has to be some give and take with the audience. After all, if we want to sell, all of our money is in somebody else's pocket, okay? And that person has to have a very good reason to take their big pile of cash and give it to us. And if we don't give them that good reason, Guess what? They are going to keep it, <laughs> you know. And so there's really, and I think it's really one of the crux of, of the problem with artists. There's a certain level of stubbornness that on the one hand, they want to make a lot of money, but on the other hand, they don't want to do what it takes necessarily. I had an artist in my you know, office studio a couple of months ago, and she made limited editions bronzers. And I said, well, how many do you make? And she said, well, I make uh, sometimes as few as one. And she said, but I don't make any money. And I said, well, how much do you sell it for? And she said, well, I sell it for $100. And I said, well, how li- long does it take you to make that sculpture? She said, well, one month, roughly. And I said, well, you know, if you make 12 a year, that is you work every month, you know, the same amount, you'll have made $1,200. Is that good for you? She says, it's not enough. She said, I want at least 10 times that. I said, then you have to multiply your prices by 10, which means defining a very different audience. You know, that's kind of fraud now 10 times more, you know. And, of course, she says, well, I don't want to do that. And I said, then you're going to be stuck with that $1,200, you know. (laughs) It's not complicated, (laughs) you know. It's a simple situation. I mean, it's actually just basic mathematics, you know, addition, multiplication, subtraction. Um, I told her, I said, you know, if it was me, you know, let's just say, you know, the tables are turned and it's me, and I'm making one sculpture a month, I'd sell it for a minimum of 10 grand, because unless I made $100,000, I don't see why I should even be doing this. And she said, why? I said, listen, when you're in business and all goes well, you know, things are pretty much standard as far as your finances, you should expect to make, that is in in actual income after you've paid all your expenses and your taxes, about 50% of your total take. That is, your profit is 50% of your gross income. And she said, well, I agree, I said, then that's $60,000 out of 120 dollars And if I was to make less than that, then I might as well go to McDonald's and make minimum wage. Or find a job for ten, fifteen dollars an hour, where I don't have, I can turn my brain off. I don't have to do marketing, and I'm making the same amount of money. You know, uh, because in my mind, and this is one of the motivation behind writing this book. If we are not doing this and making more money than we would doing some very run of the mill job, in my w- way of looking at it, we are putting too much effort into it. You know, either we should do it for free or we should make way more than that. You know.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me go back to something you said before. Uh, you know, we create the product before we find an audience. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate your saying that um, that's the way we tend to do it and that it's good to question that. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But just taking that and saying, well, okay, we've got it, um, can you say more about how you find that audience for what it is that you've created and what you have a passion for? I mean, in other words, are some uh, genres easier to sell than others, or um, are the customers different in some genres as opposed to others?
0: Well, yeah, there is definitely some genres that sell better than others. I'll give you an example. If I take a photo of my car and I put it for sale, it's very unlikely to sell because I like the car personally, but there is no good reason why a bunch of people out there would want that in their living room, you know? After all, it's my vehicle. It might be one of the best vehicles in the world, but it's mine. It's not theirs. They're not going to put it over the mantle, over the fireplace, you know. On the other hand, if I take a photograph, let's say, of the Grand Canyon, just to give one example, and it evokes, you know, the grandeur of nature, it evokes maybe sunrise or sunset, you know, the beginning of the day or the the end of the day, you know, it's very moody, it has a very powerful evocative quality it's really my work, but it's really about nature and our relationship with nature. You know, the beauty, the grandeur of inspiration, the peacefulness, all of that. And at that point, somebody, and a lot of people, as a matter of fact, will want to hang that over their mantle. you know, over their fireplace. So that pretty much, I think, opens up right here an understanding as to what sells, right? Now, the second thing is, you know, how much are we going to spend? Well, if we continue the metaphor with the fireplace and the mental you know the prominent spot in somebody's home it doesn't have to be the mental but it has to be a very important place in somebody's home with a large area so you can hang a large photograph a large size we say adequate you know we we use the word adequate that person is going to pick a photograph that is in cost proportional or related to the cost of their home And the way I put it is this, nobody hangs a $100 photograph over the mantle of a million dollar home. And the reason for that is simple, the value of the photograph is supposed to increase the value of the home, not bring it down. And so if I put a $10,000 photograph over the mantle of a million dollar home, it achieves that goal, it raises, increases the value of the home. If I put a cheap photo done by an artist whose name was number 15, right, (laughs) you know, it had a little circle with number 15 on it because it's a factory. It depreciates the home. So that defines the audience now. So we have to look at what people want and how much they can afford and what they're looking for. Let's say you have a show, right? Let's say you're doing a show of your work. You're in a public place, you're in an art show. There's a lot of people working by. And you've decided to sell your work on the basis of price, very, very cheap. Everything is around $100, $200. Here comes somebody who is the owner of a million dollar home, which is a very common home price in the United States, actually on a very re- relatively low end. And they look at your work and they're looking for a piece to put over their mantle, they're not even going to enter your booth. Because the value of your work is just not in tune with what they are looking for. Now they are not going to agree to $100,000, they might not even agree to $10,000, but they know that they expect the price to be in the thousands. Okay. Mm-hmm it's an investment you know it's 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 something that i understand yeah and uh
1: another aspect of that um that you might want to speak to is a market differentiation in other words you are in a broad category you're a fine art photographer narrow it down a little bit more you are a landscape photographer narrow it down a little bit more you are a landscape photographer of the american southwest Mm and even finer than that there are others who photograph in the same area so how do you differentiate your work from other people or is it even necessary to differentiate
0: it oh it's absolutely indispensable to differentiate yourself any the more money you want or the more money you ask the more unique you have to be the difference between bentley and Rolls royce right they are both extremely pricey cars Arguably, Rolls-Race is a little bit more expensive, but they are both extremely, extremely pricey cars. They are the l- most luxurious vehicles in the world. The difference is Bentley is oriented towards performance. They have a car with a very high level of performance, you know, 0 to 16, 4.5 seconds for a car that weighs al- almost 6,000 pounds. Rolls-Race is oriented towards comfort. That's the separation, and it's very, very clear, okay? now. That's of, of matter to a very small number of people because, you know, there's al- hardly anybody wants to buy either of these cars. But, but those that buy it, it's very, very, very important. And so in anything that you do, you have to separate yourself very, very clearly for your audience. Okay, that's very important. Most people out there that are not familiar with cars the the way I am, could not tell the difference between Bentley and Rolls-Royce and probably could not tell the name of the three Rolls-Royce models. Y- you take uh, Ferrari, for example. Uh, there is two kinds of people when it comes to Ferrari. Those that know Ferrari and say, I saw a Ferrari. And those that can say, well, that was a 430 Scuderia as opposed to the regular 430 F1. That is, those that know the number of the car, the name of the car, the specific model, okay? So you you can only make sense to your audience. You know, somebody that looks at my work and and is not my audience will look at it and say, nice landscapes. Somebody that looks at it and knows what they are looking at will say, that's Alan Brillo. And that's eventually where you want to get at. You know, you you say, you know, I'm a fine art landscape photographer with a specialization in the US Southwest. Well, if you look at location, you're totally, absolutely, 100% accurate. But that's not what I'm selling. I'm not selling location. I'm selling Alan Breaux. I'm selling myself. And that takes me completely out of it. I can sell photographs from anywhere in the world. They'll continue to sell because people are not buying the location first. They are buying me. And in art, the only time that you're going to start to make money is when you, s- you move away from selling location and you start to sell yourself. And I'm using my name because I'm the one speaking, but anybody out there who wants to follow the same technique has to use their own name. That's when you start to make a lot of money because as long as you sell location, as you said, anybody can go to that location, let's say the Grand Canyon, take a photo of the Grand Canyon and say, well, this is fine art, landscape photography, we've answered on the Southwest and the Grand Canyon. The same as what Alan does. But my answer will be yes, but you know, wh- when you buy from me, what you buy is my own style, my own view of the Grand Canyon. And in practice, in effect, you don't buy the Grand Canyon. You know, you can buy the Grand Canyon anywhere, but you can only buy my work here. So that, that is the unique quality. That is the unique factor. We call it the U.S. And I
1: must say to your credit that having uh, looked at your work, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to, uh, to go to your website, uh, the beautiful landscape, uh, take a look. And um, I have lived in... Um, Arizona myself and I'm familiar with a lot of the locations that uh, Alain has uh, uh photographed and if you think that you know you can go there and uh, even using the same equipment get the same images he gets you're, you're you're going to have a surprise I mean that's really where the art comes in and he's done one of the more difficult things which is to uh visually distinguish himself such that uh, people who uh, are looking for a difference will definitely see that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and really, you know, nobody starts, you know, with what I call, in marketing term, a USP, a unique selling proposition. If we look at me, you know, my unique selling proposition, like any artist has to be your style, whatever that is. The difference between one artist and another is the style. Salvador Dali has or had a very different style than, let's say, Monet. You know, totally opposed And within the same movement, because Monet was, Dali was a surrealist and Monet was an impressionist, so there are different art movements. But within the same art movement, if we look at surrealism, Dali had a completely different style from Magritte, for example. And Monet had a completely different style from Cézanne. Okay, within the same art movement. And so my style is obviously within the movement of what I would call American landscape color or black and white photography, but my style is totally different from other people's style. Okay. So that's very important. That's the USP, the unique selling proposition even though we are selling at the same level of price, at the same, we're selling the same subject, there is differences, just like there is differences between Bentley and Rolls-Royce. And they're only visible to people that are familiar with the concept, with the subject matter. Like I said, if you stop somebody in the street, most likely either they never heard of these two cars or they can't tell the difference or they are both, you know, cars that people who eat grape poop on drive, you know? It's very stereotypical, you know? There are cars for people that have too much money and and so on. But they are not, you know? They are very, very specialized vehicles. They are just very unfamiliar to the audience because, you know, the majority of people are not qualified. They are not looking for that, Mm -hmm. okay?
1: And again- One of the things, uh, you know, I want to bring this out because it's implied in what you're saying, but I want to kind of bring it to the mm -hmm. surface for people who may be missing this point that as you begin to brand yourself, as you begin to have a distinctive style, mm-hmm. it sounds to me as if you are going for a smaller audience rather than a larger one. In other words, you're not trying to sell necessarily to everybody, but to a specific number of people who can really appreciate what it is you have to offer.
0: Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, uh, you're totally right, and I'd I'd go even further than you're you're saying. The audience is small to start with. And that is another thing about, you know, some of the issues that artists have, uh, some of the issues I had when I started. When I started, I wanted everybody in the world to own one of my photographs. I realized that if I was to do that, I had to make the price so low And the quantity is so large that in the end, I would kill myself producing that many photographs. And my problem is that because of where I was sitting at the time, which was at the Grand Canyon, I nearly succeeded in that endeavor, and it nearly killed me. And so uh, I realized that you have to reduce the audience. You have to reduce the audience because that's the only point at which you can start asking for the kind of prices that you want to ask. And that's the only time when you can create the product that's going to generate that price. You don't just put a high price on art and get it. You've got to create the work that can sustain that price. If, if you sell a Rolls Royce... It's you know,
1: intuitive for a lot of people.
0: Well... Uh, I think it's counterintuitive because in, initially, I mean, I understand your logic. It's it's perfect logic. Yeah, if you, if you, people say Rolls royce are expensive, well, yes, they are. But Rolls Royce is also extremely reliable, you know, and they have a level of luxury that will not be found in any other car, you know. And I really encourage people who do find out to step into luxury stores because we are selling a luxury product, you know, to put a, a ten thousand dollar photograph over the mantle of any home is a very far stretch you know and and for that matter some people will put you know six figures and even seven figure photographs it's a very far stretch we can get away with a two hundred dollar image you know so it's the difference between buying a a very inexpensive car to and buying a luxury car that's what the difference is And, and we're selling a luxury product and and just just out of curiosity, just go into a luxury dealership and sit in one of these luxury cars. Sit into a Rolls Royce. You know, take it for a spin, and then go back and you sit into a ten thousand, twenty thousand dollar car, and you will see the difference. The difference is, you know, at the level of the finish, at the level of the fact that you have natural wood leather versus plastic and molded parts. You know, that's the Absolutely, difference between.
1: <laughs> yes, and I can tell you, it's, it's funny you mention that uh, uh, analogy because. Um, I uh, have done a lot of work for uh, Lexus and Mm -hmm. Mm Mercedes-Benz, and I can tell you that the luxury experience is not just in the product itself, it's also in the customer service. Exactly. I'm sure you can speak to that as well.
0: (laughs) Well, you you expect the customer service because when I sell artwork, I guarantee the quality of the work for the duration, you know, I have a one-year money-back guarantee. People say, my God, aren't you afraid? You know, listen, if somebody likes your work, they're not going to return it. I could have a lifetime money-back guarantee. The reason why I don't is because, you know, in a sense, it makes no sense, you know. But I could. It wouldn't bring me any more returns than now. I get hardly any returns. Last year, I got none. The year before, I got none. You know, and, and very often when I get returns, it's because people want to a larger size. They realize that the size they ordered is not large enough. It's very difficult to put your photograph over your mantle to continue that same metaphor, you know, in a prominent spot on your home, and have all your friends come in during a party, maybe, you know, to to announce your acquisition of art. And have them ah and and oh and ooh about the beauty of the work. And then have them come back, let's say, a month later and say, oh, where is the work? And you saying, you know, I returned it to the artist. It doesn't work, you know you you either love the work or you don't love the work and when you love the work you're not going to return it you know and so this whole concept you know my students always say oh my god i should have a two-week money-back guarantee because after two weeks they don't have time to think about it so much as after one month i say, listen you can have a year money by guarantee for that matter you can have a lifetime money by guarantee either people like it or they don't if they don't like it they will probably never buy it and and exactly
1: the luxury buyer um is very much about the customer service because mm-hmm. they're very often people who work very hard, don't have a lot of free time, mm-hmm. and what counts more than anything is knowing that uh, you back your product. So they don't have to worry about, oh, is it going to be shipped well? Is there going to be any slight imperfection in the print? Uh, mm-hmm. Do I have any hassles? It's like, no, you pay this price and they're going to be satisfied.
0: Right, and also the fact that, you know, the price, well, you want peace of mind, that's what you're saying, and that's totally true, but also the price of a luxury product is in a very small part. Let's say we take, just for the sake of an argument, we, we take a product that costs us $1,000. Out of that $1,000, maybe $50 will be the cost of making the product, maybe $100, but I doubt it. It's usually a f- less than 10%. The rest is the cost of the service, you know. It's the added value. The, the fact that you're buying uniqueness. The fact that you're paying the artist for maybe spending a month making a piece, you know. I understood that one time I was in a gallery and it was a very modest gallery. And there was a painting, it was a large painting, maybe, you know, five feet high. It was a vertical panoramic, five feet high, three feet wide. And the painting was $70,000. And it was a big horn ship on a rock. And I looked at it, and I thought, my God, I can't get a big horn sheep on a rock for a whole lot less money than that, at that size. But then I, I shifted my thinking. I looked around, and there was very few people in the gallery. And as, as you probably have noticed if you went to galleries, which I'm sure you did, there's very few people in general in galleries, you know. I started thinking, how many of these paintings does that gallery sell a month? And my conclusion was that if they sold one every month, they'd be fine. That'd be about a million dollar income a year, right? you know, 70 uh-huh. times 12, you know, give, it, give or take a few other sales, you get a million dollars. If it's all just that. And I thought, so therefore, that's the income for one month. And I thought, well, if I run a gallery and I made 70 grand, you know, I think that'd be about what I would like to have, you know, <laughs> at the very least. You yeah. know. And so all of a sudden, the price of the piece isn't just what you're paying for the piece. You're paying for an artist to spend, I have a friend with a painter, maybe uh, two weeks to a month to paint this piece, for the gallery to sell it for and, and wait for a long time. And, and now what, you're, what that price covers is all of that time. It's not so much the cost of the material. I doubt that there was more than a few hundred dollars of canvas and stretcher bars and paint on that piece. But it, you're paying for all of that. And if you don't want to pay, pay to, for all of that, and this market goes out, then now you have a machine making the penning, or you have somebody in a back room cranking them out as fast as possible, you know. So that's, that's the cost of luxury products, you know. The, the materials are only part of it, you know, the research, the time, the attention to detail, the customer service, the fact that somebody can call us and we'll help them with, with their purchase, you know, we'll take half an hour if we have to. We are we are not trying to move people through the door. Somebody comes to our gallery. The visit is you know anywhere from half an hour to two hours, and we have no problem with that because we expect it. We are not in in the mass service business. We in a very pri- very personal type of business.
1: Yes, and um, I agree, and that's why I think your suggestion to really f- uh, for people to familiarize themselves with. The luxury market and really understand that market and the customers is a very good one.
0: Yeah. Can well
1: you, I, well some of the other topics that you address in your book so that people get an idea of, uh, the, say, the table of contents, yeah. of what's in there.
0: I just want to say one more thing. Um, you know, w- one of the things that obviously I'm arguing for, you know, this is not an accident, this is intentional, deliberate, is that artists cater to quality and to exclusivity rather than to a mass market. The mass market for an artist is is over. All we have to do is go to Walmart, go to Bed Bath & Beyond, go to any of these large home decor stores, and they will offer pieces that are larger and cheaper than we can actually make them. I've got to the point in some of these stores where the, the cost of the piece is less than the cost of one frame if I buy it myself. So there is no possible competition. They will win. And and so we can we, we should not try to underprice them or, or to be priced at the same as them or even close because they will win. Their costs are far less. The pieces are made in China, they are made by again number fifteen, which is you know the, the little round thing that we see on the back that says who made it. They're not signed, you know. we, we cannot compete. And so I- what I what what I've taken as an approach and it has made me successful and it can make any artist out there successful if they follow it, is to cater to the luxury market and make the piece totally exclusive, give something to the customer that these stores can never, ever give to the customer. And I have inspired myself, as you can see from my talk, from luxury stores, not just cars, but any sort of luxury store. Being from France, I had the good fortune of growing up in a country that has an enormous luxury market, you know, Vuitton, Hermes, uh, uh, you know all of the champagne brands, all of the cognac brands, all of the clothing brands. You know Dior. You know you name it. France has a very large luxury market, and so I have uh, that knowledge. But I'll just give you an example. You know just to close this, when you buy a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, those are made to the same standards. They are just two different aspects of a very high-end luxury car. And you have a wood finish in it. That is, you know, the wood paneling on the dashboard and on the sides of the the doors. That wood comes out of a single tree for the whole car. If you have an accident, it is expectable that some of the wood get damaged. That's no problem. Both Bentley and Rolls-Royce keep a duplicate of that wood. In other words, they keep the rest of the tree for your car in their facilities in England so that you can replace it. You will not find that out in, in any other brand because it is expensive.
1: In other words, when it's replaced, it'll look just like the original
0: wood. Not only that, it will come from the same tree.
1: It will come from the same you tree. You have
0: your own tree, in other words. Not the whole tree, but enough of it that we can replace the entire interior a couple of times. That, that's a phenomenal level of luxury. And for some people, that means the world. You know, to me, it's very important. Okay, why is it important? Well, you know, why ask why? That's the way things are, you know? It's just something that people expect. People buy art for those reasons. People don't buy art because they want to save money, (laughs) you know? If I want to save money, I have a very easy way out. I don't have to buy art. (laughs) If I buy art, it's because I have, let's say, disposable income, and because it is a want and not a need. To, To have your own tree waiting for you in Crewe, England, which is the birthplace of Bentley's, C I W E. I probably don't say it very well. Crewy maybe. It's a luxury. It's a want, not a need. We we can very well live very happily without having that tree waiting for us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but some of us want it. Why? Well, because we want it. You know, the same. You know, we want an original Dali or, or whatever. You know, it's a want. It's it's not a need. But yes, for those and, and it's it's emotional. It's emotional, and for those people That's who want it, yeah, and and and. And to think that people buy art on the basis of price and on the basis of saving money is a complete misunderstanding of the whole thing. They are not. You know, they are not. I'm not saying some aren't, but, you know, they, they have their own stores, you know, for that, these large uh, things. So, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to rephrase or, or reframe in a way, you know, the, the the purpose of art, you know, so that artists that are s- struggling out there like I was, that are thinking, oh my God, how many more do I have to sell in order to, make and meet, realize that it's not a matter of quantity, it's only a matter of raising the quality, raising the price, and finding some unique qualities to it, you know? I mean, if you made a frame yourself, and you guarantee to the customer that if their house burns, you can make the same frame from the same tree, and you can make the same frame because you kept the file, you have a customer for life. And indeed, I do that. I don't make my own friends, but if somebody calls me and says, my piece was destroyed, I'll reprint it, you know, at cost, basically. I'll charge them for the cost of making the print, which would be a few hundred dollars, but I'll send it back. And one of the things that shocked me is I go into some of the art galleries that sell photographs, and I ask that question. I say, let's say, you know, something happens to this artwork that I've paid, let's say, 20 grand for. uh, What happens? And I don't get a real straightforward answer. You know, it's sort of wishy-washy. Well, if that happens, call me, and we'll see what we can do. No, I want an answer right here, right now. You know, if, if you walk into a Bentley dealership and you say, what happens if I crash the car and the wood is damaged? They'll say, your tree is waiting for you, sir. They have the answer. You have to have the answer ahead of time. You can't make it up. Th- one of the rules of marketing is that there's no second chances. The minute you launch your marketing program, it has to be all figured out. You can't fix things <laughs> you know, later on. You know, you can always lower the price, but it's uh, ineffective. If something doesn't sell because the marketing is lousy, lowering the price isn't going to make it sell better. It's going to raise a red flag saying problem over there. You know, we can't sell their stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so another thing I'm hearing in what you're saying, and I want to confirm whether you agree Mm -hmm. or not, is that instead of, if someone is saying, "Oh, you you want two hundred and fifty dollars for that? That's expensive," instead of thinking, "Oh, it's expensive. I I'm charging too much," your response would be, "Well, you know, you need to find you need find customers who perceive a, a higher value in your
0: work." Exactly, because the concept of expensive is totally related to two things: a income level. I mean, if you do not make enough money to Let's say buy a luxury car, you know, at a half million dollar or million dollar price tag. It's just inaccessible. It's unthinkable. You, the, the car costs four, five, ten times more than your house. It's not. It's not logical. Just like nobody hangs a hundred dollar photograph in the mantle of a million dollar home. Nobody parks a Rolls Royce in front of a trailer, unless they are nuts. Right. Because they should really buy a better house first. But on the other hand. When you talk to the right people with the right income level, that doesn't mean they're going to buy either. They have to have that orientation, that, that predisposition. They have to have that desire. You know? Warren Buffett, for example, who is one of the richest men in the world, only buys hail-damaged cars hail-damaged car, that is cars that have been damaged by hailstorms. And those are very interesting buys because when a car is damaged by a hailstorm, a new car that is, it has nothing wrong mechanically, it just looks dinged up, right? It has all these bangs on it, right. these bumps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it works just as well as a new car, but it is lowered in price by 30% or more because you have to have extensive bodywork done to it. Well, if you don't do the bodywork and you just look at the dealer and say, hold the bodywork, I'll just pay 30% more, you say 30%, 30 gra- 30 right? Um, and so he does that. He has no interest in any of the luxury car. For him, you know, he's it, a very, he's very clear about his goals. So he's not the right customer. You can you can tell him the wood is waiting for you. He doesn't care. He he doesn't even want wood. You know. So you have to find not only the people with the right income. You have to find people with the right desire. You know that that they want something totally unique, totally the way you you're doing it. You know that that's that's a challenge. Yeah.
1: Find the right people to to whom to offer your, your unique selling proposition. Yeah,
0: and not just go with income. You know, I I remember one time very early on when I was selling, I had a customer come to my booth, and he told me I went to the NASCAR race in Phoenix. This is a very strange story. I went to the NASCAR race in Phoenix, and the Walt, you know, the drill company had a contest for the one that could mount and unmount a wheel with a Dewalt. Uh, impact drill the fastest. And I said, wow, that sounds pretty cool. He says, yes, and I won. And I said, oh my God, you won? What did you win? He says, I won $10,000. And I looked at that person and I thought, this morning this person had $10,000 less than this evening. All it took is four bolts or six, You know, I don't know exactly how many they have on the wheels. And now he has 10 grand. And I thought, I'm gonna sell him anything for 10 grand. Right? He, because it's money that he has, but he doesn't even need, right? He just got it out of a windfall. I tried for one hour, I couldn't make a sale to that person, not even for a dollar. <laughs> because this person had no interest in art. None. Yeah. None. And so the fact that we had ten grands that were totally disposable meant nothing to him because you know, for him I, I was selling the wrong thing, you know. Right, right. So there's there's very strong challenges, and 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 I and I like to go into all of that for the simple reason that artists get depressed. They're like, well, I tried to make a sale for this guy for an hour, nothing worked. I'm really worthless. I have uh, no skills as a salesperson. Well, no, I mean my skills as a sal- as, as a salesperson we are good enough, but this person had no interest in art, and so you can get discouraged for the wrong reason, you know. You know, and so what I recommend to artists and I. I put that in my book, is asking questions. If you look at somebody and you try to make a sale and it doesn't work, just ask them, if you don't mind me asking, do you collect art? And if they say yes, then say, great. Do you collect fine art photography? <laughs> right? They might collect paintings or sculptures or, or who knows what. You know. And if they say yes, look at them and say, are you interested in investing in my work? Because we might like photography by Ansel Adams you know, and not by you, right? or by some other photographer. You have to be very, very specific. And photographers uh, and artists in general are very afraid to ask questions because they don't want to hear the bad news. Well, in marketing, there's no bad news. If somebody wants to drop money, they'll tell you. Because
1: Exactly, in the automobile business it's called uh, qualifying the customer.
0: It, yeah, and it's exactly the same in all markets. And a good negotiator, because every sale is a negotiation even though it might not look like it, a good negotiator knows that just because they say I want this doesn't mean that they are going to want to pay, you know, the sticker price or whatever the asking price is. That is, I made that mistake also early on to to think that the minute you say, I love this, you're done for and you're going to have to pay maximum price. Not at all. Uh, What I do now, you know, I have land negotiation. You know, I'll I'll go to a place and I'll I'll, I'll be very enthusiastic because enthusiasm is, is very important on the part of the seller and the buyer. And I'll say, you know, this is fantastic. That's just stunning. I want it. And then the person says, well, you know, easy enough, you know, 10 grand will get this in your home, shipped and delivered, you know, just say the word. And I say, well, that's great, but I don't have 10 grand, you know, I have eight. And we start negotiating. Uh, and, and the thing is, the, the problem that a lot of artists have, the problem that I had originally, just because you ask a question, just because you make a firm statement, you, you believe you're sort of tied up to it. Know, and so, if you look at a customer and said, "Do you like my work?" You 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 think, "Well, what well, if they say no?" Well, you know what? If they say no, they probably would not have bought anyway. <laughs> you know, it's not because you asked yes, the question. Yes, right. And yeah.
1: yes, and to your point, um, at least by starting out and saying that you really desire the work, you're giving the other person a reason to
0: negotiate absolutely i've actually you're totally right i've actually found out you know i I obviously buy a lot of things you know but i I found out that when you go to somebody who is a salesperson and you say you know i love your product i just love it you're telling them that you're very very likely customer you know this is good news to them and if you're concerned about the price you know and you may not be concerned about the price you may just want all the options and all all the jazz and, and just pay maximum price and you're cool with that you know that That's fine. But you may want to negotiate. And and I really think that most people should negotiate because otherwise you end up spending too much. Uh, You you can always say, you know, the only thing is you're gonna have to work with me on the price because I love it, I want it. But this is this is my situation. And just be straightforward, you know, and calculate what kind of drop you can get, you know, and, and don't, you know, we live in Arizona, for example, right now, this is 2011, February, March. We live in an area that has lots of foreclosures and, and lots of what ho- you of, uh, call short sales. Well, uh, one of the things that's happening that's not helping the seller at all or the buyer is people see a house for sale, short sale, at $100,000 for, let's say, 1,500 square feet and they go to the bank and they say, I'll buy it for 20 grand. N- it's not realistic, <laughs> you know. Uh, right, y- right. Y- you know, it's just because nobody can sell that thing, nobody nobody can wants to buy that thing, doesn't mean the bank is gonna take 20 grand. They are not, you know, they, they need a certain number. And and so instead of, instead of that, just go to the bank and say, hey, listen, how can you and I make it possible for me to buy this house, you know? And people become extremely cheap, you know, they go all the other way. I, I just read uh, an example yesterday where somebody made an offer on of, on a short sale and let's say the short sale was for one hundred thousand they made an offer for ninety five the band declined it because they wanted four grand more. Well you know or, or ninety-eight thousand dollars for a house is a pretty darn good price. You know four thousand more or less is in is insignificant. But people become stubborn, you know. You know, the whole issue of negotiation is very, very important. Every sale is a negotiation. Even if the price doesn't change, it might be uh, that you have to give free shipping. It might mean that you have to do a package deal. It might mean that you have to give extra service, you know. I remember one time I... I had made a sale to a customer. I mean, this guy loved it. He had it in his hand. And I said, what would you like to buy? He says, "I I can't decide, I can't decide, I can't decide. So eventually I looked at him and I said, well, if you don't mind me asking, I always preface it that way. But it doesn't have to be, that's just my style. So if you don't mind me asking, why are you hesitating? You know, I mean, obviously you love it. I can see you can't even let go of it. You, you, you want it. I mean, what's the problem? And he says, "I drive a motorcycle. I have n- no way of carrying that." And I say, "Oh, forget it. You know, we ship." And I'll tell you what, I'll ship it for free. I- he pulled out his credit card faster than I could say, you know, anything else. Uh, we were done because the problem is we don't know what the problem is. <laughs> you know, um,
1: <laughs> why not ask? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <So> <laughs> Yeah, and also when you
1: are pricing your art well, you have more room for negotiation than if you are near the bottom of the scale, right? Mm,
0: that's right. Yeah, you have uh, I- if you if you price your work for a million dollar, you can easily grab, drop a hundred grand. Yeah, yeah, because that's ten percent. Yeah, you know. So yeah, that's ten percent. Yeah, um, but on the other hand, you're also very aware that you know and there is something very important in, in regards to high prices and i made the same mistake very early on in part because i was totally broke i had no money and so i had that thinking going on i had the thinking of, of somebody who is broke and i thought well somebody who has money just doesn't care they'll buy whatever inside as long as they like it and of course now i understand that way better because you know i have i'm no, no longer broke i'm actually doing quite well and i know that when you have money That's when you actually are much more careful how you're going to spend it because everybody wants your money and you can afford so many things that you can't possibly buy them all. And so the hardest people to sell to are sometimes some of the wealthiest people. The reason why they're wealthy is because they are very careful with their money. They are very good with money management. Uh, And so if somebody comes to me and says I'm a millionaire, I'm going to be more cautious on, on that sale but if somebody says I'm broke <laughs> you know because the difference uh-huh, in buying uh-huh. and not buying for somebody that is broke is basically having the money If, if you know I've, I've had situations where uh, kids would buy from me you know teenagers for example and even even younger than that I've sold to children as, as around 9 years old and they look at me and say oh I love it but I have no money and the mom would come and say well here's a hundred dollars just wa- buy what you want and all of a sudden they're like I'll take it because the difference in buying and not buying is having the money but when you have a lot of money, the difference between buying and not buying is not the money because you can afford pretty much anything you want. So the difference is whether you can rationalize that purchase or not. And and that's a completely different thing. And it's way more challenging as a salesperson to rationalize a purchase than to say, well, listen, you have the money, which one would you like? You know.
1: So it sounds like to be a good marketer, you need to uh, understand um, psychology. Absolutely.
0: Psychology is at the, fun- at the foundation of marketing, of sales, you know you know yeah and uh, you know you again you you learn that by like i said before visiting places you know s- stores that sell the same sort of product that you're selling if not the same product then the same clientele they address the same clientele you know the difference between walking into let's say a nissan car dealership and let's say walking into a bentley car dealership is that the lower price car dealership has as a goal and this is totally independent of you all of these decisions have been made b- way before you walk in they address all the customers their goal is to sell your car right here right now today and they'll usually ask you what would it take for you to get in this car right here right now today when you walk into Absolutely a luxury, right. when you walk into a luxury dealership their goal and again these these are decisions that have been made totally independently of you they are not looking at you and saying okay i'm going to do that to this guy they do it to everybody their goal is they know that you will not buy a car today. So their goal is to have you come back. That's a completely different goal. They, they will very hardly ever sell a car. And th- to some extent, they are, they are not even interested on the first visit. Okay. Their goal is to have you come back. It's a completely different goal. But of course, that changes the world because when you walk into a dealership and uh, the goal of the salesperson is to sell your car right here, right now, they're gonna be very aggressive. Either you buy or you leave, they don't care. You know we should if you don't leave, you waste their time because we need to make volume sales. you know we are making a small profit per vehicle. You work into a luxury dealership, their goal is to have you come back. They're going to be very accommodating.
1: It's very much more a uh, relationship building exercise. They right. want the luxury buyer to trust them, to trust the dealership to feel comfortable there. I've spoken to many luxury uh, car salespeople who have told me that, They've spoken to a customer who left the dealership not buying anything. The very next day, in comes a friend of the customer Mm -hmm. who's in the market and says, well, uh, you know, so-and-so's my doctor. He said to talk to you. Right. And that guy comes in and buys a car.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I go to all of these places, you know, to buy and also to learn. You go to the Nissan dealership, you get a Christmas card if you buy. (laughs) <laughs> that is, if you buy a car, yeah. you will get a card that says, "You know, please come back. here's a special offer for a real change. You know, thank you so much for your business. We look forward to selling you your next vehicle." Right? You go to a Bentley dealership. You get a card because you did not buy, <laughs> saying, "You know, <laughs> call me. Then you know, uh, you know, I'm, you know, what I'm saying when you're ready." Right you'll never get a car because you did not buy from the Nissan dealership because they don't uh, cater to that either you buy or you don't buy if you don't buy your car if you buy it now you get into the customer roster you know list and you know obviously in fine art i'm catering to people that will come back i'm not expecting people to make a purchase immediately that's not the idea we operate on the same level that's why i'm making all these comparisons not because i want to own a car dealership i have no interest but because uh, i'm modeling my business along the lines of luxury stores okay, where the first visit is basically a discovery process. And from there, we're gonna work our way towards a decision. And we're not selling value, okay? We we don't have to sell a lot to make the money we want because we have high prices. You know, when we do shows, and right now we don't do shows anymore because we have a home gallery and we sell a lot on the internet. But when we did shows, the other artists would look at us and say, my God, you had four customers. I saw you make four sales. And we would laugh and say, yeah. Because, you know, those four sales came to an amount that was far greater than, than their hundreds of sales. <laughs> you know? There you go. Because, you know, if you want to guess how many, and it's really an educated guess, how much money an artist is making in a show, it's very simple. You go to their book, you look for the prices, and you generate an average price. So let's say they sell anywhere from $5 to $20, average price is between is $12.50, right? And then you just, g- for one hour, you count the number of customers. And if you're in a rush, you can count them for fifteen minutes, you know. And then you multiply that by the number of hours they were at the show, and you get, and then you multiply that number by the, the average price, and you have a rough estimate of how much you make. And in practice, you're pretty much right on. Well, you know, if I have one customer per hour, or, or, one ca- or four customers during the day, and my average shed is $1,000, I have four grants you know. And it's that simple. Yeah, yeah. But if your average but share you is 1250 and you have 100 customers, then you have $1,250, <laughs> right? You know. uh-huh. so, so the number of customers is no relationship to the income. But unfortunately, it's counterintuitive. Intuition is the more customers I have, the more money I make. Fact is, it, it has no direct relationship. Makes sense.
1: It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Was there uh, anything else you wanted to... Uh um, well, Feel that you may have missed.
0: You know, I, I, I want to make sure
1: that we mention the book and make sure everybody knows when that's y- coming out and, yeah. and uh, uh, how to how to get a copy. Because um, I, I I myself <laughs> am wanting to know. I'm sure there's going to be a no- lot of great knowledge in there.
0: Well, for one thing, there's nothing like it out there because uh, you know I have a I have a personal attitude. A lot of people have asked me if you know so much why give it away. You're going to hurt your income. Well, first of all, no, I'm not hurting my income because you know people buy me. They don't buy landscape photography, so they'll continue to buy my work regardless of whether or not I write a book on marketing. The second thing is I have a personal philosophy, which is if I don't want to give something away, I just do not talk about it. It's that simple. There is a very easy way to prevent having the can of worms being open. You just don't open it. You know, instead of trying to shove the worms back in. I just don't don't talk about it, you know. If I talk about something, I don't hide anything. That's my approach, you know. And I really think that, you know, the other thing is there is a very, very big market for fine art landscape photography. My book addresses all fine art, photography or not but it says in fine art landscape photography. And the market for fine art photography is gigantic. And the reason for that is because in today's society, and I'm not saying it has always been like that, but it's, it is true right here, right now, today, in the beginning of the 21st century, we're looking at the landscape as a place of respite, as a place of hope, as a place to find Maybe shelter from the busyness, the stress, and all the pressure of modern life. It's a place where we can escape mentally and feel at peace. And so people want to decorate their homes with landscape photographs. And, And landscape photographers are doing phenomenally well. The problem is only a few of them really know how to sell their work, how to market their work. You know i'm one of them because i learned the hard way and because you know i had training as a phd student on how to do research and so i researched marketing and I, and I made it a sort of passion of mine but most people don't have the time and don't have necessarily the opportunity to do all of that and that's why i wrote this book to help them i don't think i'm taking anything away from anybody uh what i'm doing is i'm sharing knowledge Wh- when you think about uh, any business if you go to any business owner out there except art and you say do you market right the person will look at you and laugh they'll probably laugh their head off and say are you nuts i mean do you think I could be successful and not market i mean come on you know nothing sells unless you advertise it mm-hmm. but you go to an artist and you say, do you market and they, are, and they look at you and, and they say you know if you would please not swear in front of me, I'd appreciate it. Because they think that marketing is a four-letter word. Marketing is trickery. Marketing is trying to convince people to do something against their will. Uh, I always tell them, no, marketing is not a four-letter word. Marketing is a nine-letter word. Just count, (laughs) you know, marketing, nine letters. Um, And and they, they are shocked. They say, well, that's not what I mean. And I say, no, I know what you mean. But the fact is that if you don't market, if you don't advertise, one thing will happen, nothing. You will not sell. You will go out of business. Everybody that's successful has marketed. And they say, well, not artists. The fact is that past World War II, and it could have been past World War I, but we'll just put it safely after World War II, every artist that has been successful has marketed their work. Uh, I get that, uh, that question all the time. People say, well, Picasso did not market. Picasso marketed to countries. But Picasso marketed to Spain and to France. He marketed to the French government. The great thing with marketing to a government is that governments deal with other governments, which deal with entire countries. If a government takes you under their wing, you're famous nationally and eventually internationally. And that's what happened, okay? The last uh, marketing thing with Picasso was to donate most of his collection to the French government when he died as, as payment for inheritance taxes. It has become a national museum, one of the most visited in Paris, and it continues to generate income through the sale of reproductions. It's a complete misunderstanding of what is happening. Lack of knowledge causes extreme mistakes. You know, uh, when people did not realize, you know, th- the health risk of fast food, for example, they indulged in it and then got cancer and e- extremely high level of cholesterol and died of heart attacks. Now we understand it and we look at people eating fast food and, and we are critical of them. But people don't understand marketing art. It's the same. And so they're like, well, I don't need marketing. My work is beautiful. Well, you need marketing. Um, well,
1: that's the perfect segue for your book. Yeah. So well, you know, like
0: uh, Gordon. Uh, did you
1: just list Some of the topics that are in your book, and yeah, uh, I just want to start with uh, this. When it's going to
0: be available, I just want to start with this because we're on a marketing topic Uh, Gordon Gecko in uh, you know, Wall Street Part Two. Uh, has a presentation for his book. And he says, I have three words for you. And people are thinking, those are the three words of success. And he, and he says, buy my book. Right. So but those are the three words, you know, <laughs> buy my book. <laughs> you know. so, so, you. Th- so buy my book on marketing, so five words. Buy my book on marketing fine art, seven words. Um, but that's, that's the message. So yeah, the topics are, are, you know, I cover marketing from A to Z as far as fine art. And uh, you know, places <laughs> to sell, I have a chapter on best sellers. You know, if people want to know what is a best seller, what sells the best, here it is. There's one particular photograph that has paid for my first house, cash, and, and, I, and I show you which one it is. If you want to do that, m- more power to you. Um, I have a book on the most common mistakes that mi- all that these make when we market, and the first one being to not market. <laughs> that, that's not even listed, <laughs> but it's, it is the first one. I have a chapter on where to to market, on the tools that you need. uh, We did not have enough room in the book to put all of these documents, so a lot of them are downloadable from my site. So you get a link. uh, There's no charge. You don't have a password. You just go to my site. The link is in the book, and you can download these documents that are basically the ones that I've been using. So, you don't have to make it. benefit of
1: those who may be unfamiliar, what is your website?
0: My mm-hmm. website uh, is beautiful landscape.com, or if you type alan, A L A I N, brio, B R I O T, dot com, you'll get there. Or just do a search okay. for alan brio and uh, you'll find me. Uh, basically, it's a book that has no competition because there's nothing else like it. And the reason why there's nothing else like it is because other artists don't want to talk about how they sell their work. They think that's going to hurt their bottom line. But it doesn't. You know, if you, if you look at any other industry out there, there is book after book after book on marketing, and it doesn't hurt anything. I mean, if you go on Amazon.com and you do a search for salesmanship, you're going to find hundreds of books on how... To learn salesmanship, that doesn't mean that when people go to a store they don't buy anything because they are being sold to. You know, good salesmanship is pleasurable. I mean, personally, when I go to a store and I'm lucky enough to work with a good salesperson, I love it. You you feel like a king, you know. And of course, absolutely
1: that that's right. Yeah. And the same applies with marketing. If someone really understands their work, values it, and knows how to sell it. It's a pleasurable experience for the customer.
0: Because marketing is really oriented towards the audience. I, I always say to photographers, uh, one of the questions that I ask very early on when I do consulting is, what kind of business are you in? And they look at me like I'm an idiot and they say, well, I, hello, I'm in the business of selling photographs. And I say, well, you know, I, I could have guessed, you know. <laughs> I don't get offended, I know what I'm doing. And, and I say, but really, what kind of business are you in? And they say, well, I'm in the business of seeing photographs. I say, two whom? I say, two people. I say, so would it be fair to say you're in the people business? That is what we are in, you know, the luxury market is not about selling cars, it's not about selling photographs, and and that's why I go into all these stores, there's no difference whether I go to Hermes or Bentley or or Dior or any of the luxury stores, because they're all in the people's business. They're all catering to human beings. Their number one concern are their customers. And, And that's what I resent in stores that sell extremely cheap. The last concern is the customer. You're gonna move through the line out. You know, the minute you've bought, you have to leave the store. You know, try hanging out. Go the next time you go to a—I'm not even going to give a name—but and this addresses everybody here. You know, go to a very large retailer. <laughs> you know, make your purchase, and then hang out by the door, just out of curiosity. Just hang out by the door, and, and see what happens. You know, you, you won't be asked to leave because you have no purpose. You've bought. You're supposed to go. You know. Now go to a luxury dealership. By loitering. Yeah, at at worst, you might be doing industrial espionage, who knows, you're suspicious. Now go to a luxury store, make your purchase and hang out by the door and see what happens. They're going to come to you and say, is there anything else we can do for you? It's a completely different attitude because they know that once you've made your purchase, we are not done. We might actually be at the very beginning. To go to a luxury dealership, a luxury store, and make a small purchase. That's another thing. Make a very small purchase. It, you know, in luxury clothing stores, it's very easy. Buy perfume. The perfume is usually the lowest price item in a luxury French or Italian clothing store. You can buy a bottle of perfume for a hundred, a few hundred dollars, maybe two, three hundred months. The dressers might be twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. And see what happens. You will have the same exact treatment whether you buy something for a hundred dollars or a thousand or ten thousand dollars. That's very important. There's no difference. You're not discriminated because you don't spend much money. Because they're in the people's business, they know that that one bottle of perfume might lead to a multi ten of thousands of dollars sale later on. Now try to make the small same purchase from somebody that, let's say a photographer at a show that sells on the basis of price, buy your postcard and see how you're treated. There'll be resentment, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to be the person that has the resentful approach. You want to be the person that's thankful because they acquired a new customer even though that person hasn't spent a lot of money. That person can go to the door, and I have done it myself, make a 360 turn on their heels, go straight for the big item, and buy it. Just because, you know what, I like this store. And that's what you want, you know, that's what you want. Because you want people to be excited and happy about what you're doing. It's, it's a relationship. And I, and I really think, I don't want to take this into too far of a domain, but I really think that in, in our society, you know, not just the United States, but the Western world, we've lost that to a great extent. We've become totally focused on making as much money as we can right here, right now, and not catering to making people happy, making them feel good, making them feel like human beings, you know so there is a larger pur- mm-hmm. purpose and, and you can't do that if you're gonna make a hundred sales a day in order to break even you can only do that if it doesn't even matter if you make a sale a day I mean we don't make sales every day but then when we make a sale it carries us for you know a long time you know, because of the, the pricing. But is and
1: I'm sure that because of your <coughs> well I'm not sure but I imagine because of your personal and individualized approach uh, you're a lot more familiar with your customers. You probably know a lot of your customers by first name.
0: Not only that, but we know, uh, and and Natalie helps me a lot with that uh, because she takes care of that. We remember what we bought, we remember when, when they were here, we remember what they went through. You know, we remember, we know a lot about their personal life. We, we know, for example, if they, if they retired, if they sold their house, if they're having difficulties with this or that, if whatever is going on, sure. Yeah. We're in the people's business. I mean, I have no doubt at all whatsoever. I don't sell photographs. <laughs> That's not my business. My business is people. Yeah it wouldn't make any difference for me if all of a sudden my gallery went and i sold something totally different i'd approach exactly the same i'll just tell people you'll have to bear with me because i'm not totally familiar with this this product <laughs> i'm still learning but you're you know i know a lot about you and and that's all you need you, if you know more about your customers than about your product i think you're in good shape
1: so you mentioned a gallery you you have a physical
0: gallery yeah i have a home gallery um we bought a house that's quite large. We, we have over 5,000 square feet, and we have one room which is a home gallery. And the reason why we did that is because we were tired of doing shows, and I did not want to open my own gallery. And, and the reason for not opening my own gallery is twofold. The first one is, it's very expensive as a proposition, there is a lot of investment, but also you now have to be in that gallery physically 24 hours, well not 24 hours a day, but every day that you open. So if you open 9 to 5, and you have to be there every day from 9 to 5. You might close one day o- a week. Or you have to hire an employee. And just to give you an idea of the cost, I have a friend who has a gallery in Scottsdale, Arizona. So that would be very, very comparable to what I would do because that's the place for art in Arizona. And his costs for his gallery are about, you know, I think forty-five to $50,000 a year. Between the rent, $3,000 of rent a month, and then utilities and, and, and what, insurance and whatnot. Which means that you have to make $45,000 to break even. With my system, if I make $45,000, it's almost profit. I mean, you know, because I can actually, I don't have to, to rent a separate space. I'm, I'm using my own house, so it's immediately profit. Right. Yeah. And so you work less. I, because the, the whole concept isn't how much money you make, the whole concept is how much money you keep. If somebody comes to me and says, I made a million dollars, I tell me I say, that's great. Now, how much did you keep? <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, s- yeah. sometimes they kept nothing, you know. It's it's my approach, it has worked very well, and I have a lot of time left uh, to write, to teach, and to do things that I enjoy, you know, as opposed to being in my gallery all the time and, and waiting for customers. Yeah,
1: r- yeah. Well, that rises, brings rise to a, uh, one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of roughly how you divide up your time, because some people might say, oh, You know, if I had to spend all my time marketing, I'd go crazy because, I mean, maybe I understand the need for it, but, I mean, how much time do you actually, now that you've got your systems in place, of course, how much time marketing as opposed to teaching as opposed to
0: photography? Well, uh, the problem with the question is now that I have my system, but the fact that I have a system in place means that I can minimize the time that I spend marketing because the system takes care of itself. But when I set up the system, the rule of thumb, and, and I would suppose that for the majority of people listening to this, if you're not in business yet or you're just starting, you're at the level of either setting your system or putting your system together, figuring out what you're gonna do. The rule of thumb is that if you're not spending half of your time marketing and half of your time doing everything else, which is running the business, actually selling, uh, taking photographs, you know, printing, proofing, I mean, uh, you know, optimizing whatever you're doing, matting, framing, and all of that. If you're not spending half of your total time marketing, you will not be successful okay Uh, there is no way around that and the second rule is that if you're just starting and and you basically have very little in place if anything and that is you you do have photographs but you do not have a business okay and you may not have a product Uh, a photograph is not a product a photograph is a photograph a product is is a completely packaged photograph I go into that in my book you know the difference between a product and a photograph then at that point if you have nothing then you should count up to 75% of your time marketing Okay. That's very, very important. And that's one of the reasons why people are unsuccessful. They are like, that's too much time. Well, let me ask you this question. How much does it matter to you to make a good income? You know, that's... Uh, yeah. If you look at luxury product, and again, we go back to that because, uh, you know, this is the model. I'm not inventing anything that I say is Alan Brio as far as marketing. My style is me, but my marketing is not everything designed by me. I, I did not reinvent the wheel, I, I found the wheel, it had already been invented, I just adapted it to marketing, uh, photographs, you know, fine art, I, I, and, and landscapes, and you know, but I modeled it against uh, other marketing techniques out there. My job was to adapt and not to invent, that's why I could go so fast. I mean, I started this business in 1997 it's 2011, so, you know, 14 years, you know, and counting that the first two or three years I had no idea what I was doing so more likely ten years I went from zero to wherever I am now it's a very very fast progression and I I could not have done it if I had done everything myself okay I I learned from what existed and uh, if you look at luxury cars, luxury brands, you know be it Hermes or be it Dior you will look at their marketing their marketing is more intense than cheap brands because when you market on the basis of price, which is what cheap brands do, you don't really need to do more than say, this is the price. You, know. you look at Walmart, Walmart spends an enormous amount of time talking about price, rollbacks, you know, that's what we call it. An enormous amount of their time and their marketing is about price. With a luxury brand, hardly any time is spent on price. That's a bigger problem. It's harder to market a luxury product than to market a cheap product. And that's another reason why a lot commodity, of- commodity. Th- yes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. much harder.
1: Yeah, commodity pricing versus luxury price.
0: Yeah, exactly. It, it's, and so that's another reason why a lot of photographers sell their work cheap. It's a whole lot more intuitive to market on the basis of price than to market on the basis of luxury or quality. Because marketing on the level of price is very simple. All you have to do is, I got the lowest price around. There's a guy on TV, I'm not sure what he does, but, um, and I forgot his name, I, I, I repress all of that, but anyway. Uh, it says nobody beats Chuck, oh, you know, <laughs> right and I told Natalie I said you don't want to beat Chuck because if nobody beats Chuck And we we'll are tell you price, you know, then the minute somebody beats Chuck then Chuck has to lower his price And eventually Chuck is gonna die, you know, trying to be the lowest price guy <laughs> around uh, And and so, you know my saying is everybody beats Alan, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah Everybody's cheaper, you know. That's that's good. I have no problem <laughs> with that. Yeah. That doesn't does mean I make no money. That, that means you know they're cheaper. You know. It has no relationship with income. Yeah. Because I, I don't claim to be the cheapest. I, I you know that's not the idea. Uh, yeah. But
1: again, to get back to the original question, I, 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 I you, your point is well taken that when you start out, you need to be doing at least fifty, spending at least fifty mm-hmm. percent of your time in yeah. the marketing. But now that uh, you do have your systems in place, just for you know, the sake of reference, about how do you divide your time? Because obviously you do need to spend time creating new work.
0: Right, That's I'd what th- you're in this. I'd still say that on a yearly basis, you know, if I'm not introducing uh, new products and so on, I spend at least 30% of my time marketing. That is, you're never gonna go below one third. Never blow away. Yeah, no. It, it's unrealistic. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like saying that all of a sudden everything is fine. It's, it's not. You know, it, you know, if you don't advertise, one thing happens, nothing. If you stop advertising, one thing happens, it stops. <laughs> you know, the sales stop. So you, you, you can't. No. Uh, the other rule is you go to market or advertise or promote in good times and in bad times. If things go well, market some more. If things don't go well, market some more. So there is no difference. People are like, it's a recession. What do you do? Nothing different. <laughs> you know, nothing different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. The charge
1: is actually starting to run low on my phone. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't want us to get uh, accidentally cut off. Right. So, um, c- could you uh, just tell us when we should expect to uh, find your book available and well, how we can get a copy?
0: Right now, we are finishing the layout, and the book is scheduled but you know in publishing schedules don't always work but it's scheduled to be available towards the end of april and uh, you'll find it on my site and you'll find it in any bookstore you know uh, so the way i sell it is if you go to my site you'll get a copy of the book with a limited edition print and a signed copy you know with uh, actually a certificate And and then, of course, in any bookstore, you'll get the book by itself. And the reason why I I do that is actually a marketing decision because I cannot compete with the prices offered by Amazon or other bookstores. They actually sell the book for barely more than what I pay for it, believe it or not, because they are buying such large quantities. And they offer free shipping, and so I, I can't compete with that. So I offer something different, which is, you know, a print by me, which is one of the photographs from the book, and a certificate that is signed by me with the book. So it makes it a collectible item. And
1: uh, So someone who goes to your website has that option or right. if they want to take the uh, Amazon option, I suppose they could uh take yeah. a pre order if they exactly.
0: want to do that. Yeah we can we can order it from there. The only signed copies are the ones available from from me basically. And I don't sell yes, the yeah. So it's again a different approach but it works, you know, and and you really have to uh, think uh, you know in terms of What's going to work for you? Because and this is a reality for all uh, photographers, all artists listening out there. You cannot today outdo working out of your house. A multinational company like Amazon or Walmart. You know their buying power is such that it will kill you. You know they they have uh, they're buying things in large quantities. You know the truckload literally, if not the boatload. You know and. Uh, we we cannot compete, you know. The only way we can compete is if we decide to lose money, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that's really interesting because a lot of artists don't quite get that. They're like, well, I'm going to. I had a student. She told me, uh, I have a competitor that said to me, his goal is to become the Walmart of photography, and I told her, I said, well, leave him alone because he will die (laughs) and you don't want him to drag you under at the same (laughs) time you know and she said how do you know i said i don't have to know he will die it's there's no other way you You cannot compete i mean you are working out of your own house and they have hundreds of stores they have a centralized computer system for inventory you know when you buy at walmart right you have the cash register and the lady or the, the the person you know the associate man or woman zaps your product and you hear the beep at that precise second of or instant, a se- fraction of a second, the information about what you bought is now available in Bensonville, Illinois, which is the headquarters of Walmart. And an item similar to the one you bought is on its way to the truck to resupply that store. Okay.
1: <laughs> oh you're absolutely right. It's, it's you, you, mm-hmm. you don't try to beat somebody at their own game. Let machines yeah. do what they do best yeah. and human beings do what they do best.
0: Right. So in order to be the Walmart of photography, you would have to have the same system. Well, nobody does right. So, so therefore that game is over, we are going to win. See, I have a, I have a rule that <coughs> I don't do anything unless I have a fair chance and I'm not saying a guaranteed but a, a fair chance of winning. That's why I'm not climbing Mount Everest, that's, not why, that's why I'm not entering into the 100-meter dash because I know that Hudson Bolt would build me up you know, by a, maybe a half, ma- half hour, you know, and I would die fro- frozen on the, c- the, the face of Mount Everest. You know, I have no such interest, there's not enough of a fighting chance. But when it comes to marketing, I'm not going to go against Walmart because they will win. You know. But I'm going to go and do what I can. I can offer something that they cannot offer, and that's what I'm doing. And and I'm catering for two people that are looking for that one thing, you know. If they want the lowest price, I'm sorry, you know, that that can't happen. I'm not able to do it. But if they want the highest level of service, I can suddenly uh, have a fighting chance at that, and I'll do my best, you know. And I think we have to be very clear, you know, with our goals. And I think, you know, the problem with a lot of photographers, and that's why, uh, again, like Gordon Gekko, they should buy my book, is they're like, well, you know, we'll try and we'll see what happens. It doesn't work that way. You, if you try to be like Walmart, I can tell you right here, right now what's going to happen. You will die trying. You don't have to try. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I've seen the future. It's, it's clear. Don't even do it. Yeah.
1: So for those who um, might want uh, something uh, more than the book, do you uh, offer any other products? Do you uh, do seminars or uh, I- do you yeah. have anything else available on your website?
0: I, I'm, I'm thinking of, well, I do offer a lot of consulting and I have an advanced uh, tutorial on marketing that goes beyond the book called The Mastery Workshop on DVD, which is the same as a live seminar, except uh, you know, on DVD for people that don't want to travel. And I have a lot of customers from overseas and there's a lot of customers that cannot travel for various reasons, you know, either the schedule or their private lives, or the fact that I'm in Arizona and they're in, you know, somewhere very far away. And so I offer the same, and I do that not only for my marketing tutorial, but for all of my tutorials because you know time is precious. And also because when you sit in a classroom for two days, you can't remember everything. But when you have it on a disc, you can listen to it and study it as long as you want and eventually you'll get more from it. Marketing is something that's constantly evolving. The basic principles don't change. But how these principles are applied is constantly changing, and so it's important to stay in touch w- with uh, those and that's why I offer the consulting you know it's also very important to realise that there is no such thing as a cookie cutter approach in marketing. Everything has to be tailored to your particular test and your particular approach. you know That's why if somebody copies everything that I do and it happens regularly and we expect to be as successful as I am, it doesn't happen because yes, you can copy everything that I do, but you're not me. And so there is a lot of things that I'm doing that you're maybe not willing to do or, or you don't know about. A lot of it is not available just like that. you know you, you don't know how we run our business you know on a day-to-day basis. And there's also a matter of personality. You know, certain things that somebody will do will come across as okay, and others will not. You know, we each have a a unique personality, a unique past, a unique background, a unique, you know, likeness, you know, and so on. And so eventually it has to be customized for you, and that's where the consulting or the mentoring comes in. And very often, you know, we run into problems that are unique to us. You know, Uh, I'm not going to mention any because that'd be going too far, but I've had problems in my business that could not be helped except by, Hiring somebody and saying, listen, this is the problem I have, can you help me? You know, I've never, I have not found anything about it anywhere. And my book cannot answer every problem in the world. I go over, I think, the 15 or so most common mistakes that photographers and artists make. But there is in practice thousands. You know, what you do when a customer has this very, very specific problem? Well, you can't cover everything in a book. So eventually there is need for marketing. One thing that I, I want to <coughs> close on is the importance to not waste time trying to figure out the will. I did not. The reason why I'm where I am is because I went for the information. I hired the expert. I read all the books that I could read. I actually consulted with a lot of people. I took classes, and I continue to because why find out the information by yourself if somebody else has it and all they want is a little bit of money to give it to you, you know? One of the things that I guarantee whether somebody buys my book or hires me as a consultant or buys my tutorial on DVD or takes one of my seminars is that whatever amount of money they spend on these products they will recoup at the very, very least that same amount and you know, if you do what I say, much, much more than that. Because in business, every mistake basically costs money you know everything you do wrong in business the penalty is money you know when you're in school and you misbehave the penalty is you get detention or you have to write on the blackboard 100 times you know i was a bad kid in business nothing like that happens you don't get detention you don't get to write lines on the blackboard you just lose money (laughs) you know and and so the sooner you can get information the less money you're going to lose
1: that's right yeah you pay for your education
0: (laughs) Right, and you pay for your profits. I remember when I was uh, studying marketing, uh, not that I don't study it anymore, but uh, you know, my study now is very different. It's much more on the level of refining certain things than at the level of discovering the big uh, you know, foundation blocks. But when I was learning and discovering these big foundation blocks, I would learn something on Wednesday, have a show on Saturday, and I could see my income increase because I knew that thing. You know, I knew what to say if somebody said that. You know, for the longest time, for example, and this is not related to marketing, but I have an essay on the internet called Just Say Yes, which is one of my most popular. And when I had somebody ask me, this is early on because I started digital very early on, somebody would ask me, well, do you manipulate your work? You know, do you change the colors? Do you do anything to it? I had no idea what to say. I thought if I say yes, I might hurt myself. If I say no, I might hurt myself. I would beat around the bush for 15 minutes. The person would look at me and say, yeah, that's interesting, and leave. Eventually, I realized that if somebody likes you, and people have to like you to buy your work as an artist. Then it doesn't matter whether you say A or B. What they care about is that you're honest. And so I started looking at people and they would say, well, do you manipulate your work? Do you uh, change the colors? Do you do this and that? Do you add things, remove, whatever? And I started looking at people and say, yes, I do all of that. And uh, something amazing happened. Those that had no interest in buying my, my work would leave immediately and say, well, that's totally unacceptable. And f- those that like my work say, oh, that's interesting. I was just curious. It did not face them one bit. So from there, I went one step further. Now when people say, do you manipulate my work, do your work? I look at them and I say, sir, if you find one of my photographs that is not manipulated, I will refund your money, provided you buy it. <laughs> you know? And they say, what do you mean? <laughs> I say, it's my guarantee. My work is manipulated, 100%. And they say, my God, that's a pretty strong statement. I say, well, it can be seen as such. But let me ask you this question. Have you found art that was absolutely the reproduction of reality? And they say, you know, now that I think of it, no. I say, then what I'm really saying here is that you're buying art. You know, And, and so, y- you know, y- you really you, like you like it or you don't. <laughs> you right. If you want reality, you know, I tell them, I say, go buy RV Travel Magazine because RV Travel Magazine shows photographs that are totally, absolutely real because they are showing you f- places along the road that you have to recognize on the basis of the photo in the magazine in order to stop by and, and recognize them. You know, it's, it's a very factual magazine. But, you know, if you want to buy, you know, uh, My work you have to agree that you might drive by that thing and you'll never know that it's the photo that you bought, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because it's art, you know? I I always say to people that if the National Park wants to buy my work, they are going to have to agree among themselves. They'll have to have a ranger meeting and say, we want to buy art that does not show the the landscape, the park, in a way that the customers can recognize it, the visitors can recognize it. Because unless we make that decision, uh, they're never going to buy it because it doesn't look like what people see. It looks like what I see, you know, and, and that's very important. You have to be very, very, very clear about what makes you unique. If you went to Salvador Dali and, and you said, do you manipulate your work? What would have been his answer? You know, he probably would have looked at you and said, you know, forget this, you know, this is, I don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> you know? what, what sort of idiot question is that?
0: Yeah, so, and, and I think that's the problem with a lot of artists, they try to please everybody, and in trying to please everybody, they end up pleasing nobody. Because you can't please everybody, you know. You have you have to know what you're doing and and be very straightforward about it.
1: Well, I I agree with you 100%. I've written similar things on my blog. Uh, um, I, uh, what I like to write about is is just how to you know get more art centered in photography rather than technology centered. Mm-hmm. And the the way I put it is that you know your visual style is as much a part of you as The way you speak and the way you sign your name, you don't make any apologies for those things. They are who you are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's the number one, you know, besides all the marketing, the part where you can really help yourself tremendously as an artist is be yourself. And if somebody doesn't like what you are, then you're being truthful to yourself, just say, okay, that person is not part of my audience, and, and that's fine, there's no problem there. We are looking for a small audience, so it might take a while until you find it, but that's fine, you know. If you look at luxury products, you know, and I'm sure that, I've talked about it a long, you know, quite a bit during this in the interview, a lot of people that are listening might think, well, you know, Alan is full of it, I'm never gonna spend $15,000 on a dress, I'm never gonna buy your half million dollar car. That's perfectly fine. I don't think these manufacturers would be upset to hear that, they expect it. Anybody that asks us, a hundred times more for something than than everybody else expects the audience to be reduced and, and expects a number of people to be upset one of the basic rules of marketing i have that in my book i have a chapter on the fundamental rules of marketing and one of the fundamental rules of marketing is that if nobody complains about the price you have priced your work too low it's very important that you have some people complaining about the price when somebody comes to me and says, that's a rip i can't believe you're charging that much for this i'm happy because it means i'm priced right there you go we don't expect groceries to expect people to say wow you know the phantom is only 400 grand my god what a what a deal they, they don't expect that they expect people to yell and scream that's fine because the, the people that are buying the car are buying it in large part because it is the most expensive car in the world. There's actually a very interesting story about Rolls-Royce. Uh, Rolls-Royce is owned by BMW, which you know, bought the brand a few years ago. And uh, at one point, BMW raised their prices and became comparable in price you know, for the very large models, you know, the, the 7 Series, and I think they had a Net Series also at one point, to Rolls-Royce. When Rolls-Royce found that out, because even though they are owned by, d- by BMW, they are independent. You know, BMW is in Germany and Rolls-Royce is in England. When Rolls-Royce found out about that price increase, they immediately doubled all their prices. Immediately. So let's say something costs 125; now it's 250000 uh, Why? Because the number one selling point of Rolls-Royce, you know, it's not the only one, but one of the number one selling points of Rolls-Royce is that they are the most expensive cars in the world. Luxury cars, you know, obviously the Bugatti Veyron is more expensive, but it's not a luxury car. So in order to retain their USP, their unique selling proposition, they had to double their prices. Nobody objected. Because the people well yeah, I mean everybody that doesn't want one was probably thinking, My God, who do they think they are? But well, they, they've,
1: gone, cr- they've right. gone crazy. But yeah. the
0: customers the customers were like right on because we they obviously buy this car because it is the most expensive. And so if it's not the most expensive, there is actually one less reason to buy it. Yes, but
1: well, yeah, <laughs> what would be the point?
0: Yeah. The same thing in art, you know, people are like, Well, you know, this photographer made one copy of his photograph and sold it for let's say a half million dollars. How can he do that? Well he can do that because there are people out would there that want a photograph and be able to say listen I'm the only one in the world that has this print. If that's worth for half a million dollars, so be it. You know, as yeah. long as you're truthful yeah. and, and you stick to that, to that agreement, you know, that, that's the thing. You know, in business, you know, y- your word is really, you know, your biggest asset. You know, you, people are like, well, how do you guarantee that he's only going to make one? Well, it's, it's very simple. You know, it's not how many contracts you're going to sign or how many lawyers you're going to hire because if he wants to print a second one, he will, regardless. It's how much you trust that person, <laughs> you know. Because if he prints another one, his reputation is shot, and and he's never going to do it if he's got any sort of common sense. You know, uh, it's it's being very clear about what we want, and and I think, uh, you know, if you look at successful artists, you know, I studied the life of extremely successful artists, not just photographers but painters. They were very very clear about what they wanted, and and they knew how to get it, and. Uh, they did not think that marketing was trickery or was uh, swaying the audience in the wrong direction. They just found that marketing was something that was indispensable to making their work successful. You know.
1: Absolutely. You look at Andy Warhol, and that was p- part of his genius.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have to stop because I have a, a call at 2 p.m., and I have to have lunch.
1: <laughs> no problem at all. I'm, I appreciate your speaking at length about the uh, subject, and you obviously have a... A lot of passion for it. I thank you for your time. Um, and again, uh, your uh, website is the beautiful
0: landscape. Beautiful Dash and landscape. And I encourage
1: everyone to uh, take a
0: visit. Yeah, thank you. And as you can see, I can talk with marketing forever. It is an important subject, and it's one that I think uh, photographers and artists who decide to spend a little bit of time, they don't have to spend as much as me, you know, a little bit of time studying, we'll find out an enormous reward because it's not about greed, you know, it's not about Wall Street, it's not about Gordon Gecko. it's about the fact that when you make a good income from your work, you can create better work and you can be a better business person, you can have more time for your customers, you can have, you can be more relaxed, you you can be less stressed, you're not gonna get ill, you know, um, stress causes illness. And and eventually you're far better at doing what you're doing. So there's something really important here, you know, and and that's why I wrote it, you know, I just, I want to help other artists so that they don't have to go through what I got into because my lack of success in the beginning got me ill, got me to be very angry, very frustrated and uh, learning marketing actually opened the door for me. I I was like, wow, you know, I I don't have to do all of this. I don't have to please everybody. I don't have to sell for nothing. I can just do all of these other things. And it changed the world for me. And that's why, you know, I'm trying to sort of share what I've learned in a way. It's that simple.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. I hope uh, that uh, um, uh, the book appears uh, according to schedule. Uh, We'll all be keeping an eye out for it. And again, that's uh, scheduled for publication at the end of April
0: yes and uh if you go to my site you'll find i would be you know as as the book comes along I, uh, right now actually if somebody goes to my site I have a little button that says subscribe and when you subscribe to my newsletter you will get a free copy of uh, the table of contents and uh you know, the marketing book cover, I think, uh, whatever we have right now. So it's pre-advanced, you know, so if you're, and and there's no cost for that. So if you are interested in knowing more about the book, seeing something physical, you know, what it's gonna look like, what's gonna be inside. um, And I I spoke so much that I didn't have time to read the table of contents. Just go to my site, subscribe to my newsletter, and uh, you'll get it. And uh, that will help you, you know, if you're interested in buying it. But really, you know, if you're an artist, and you're not making as much money as you want. And I think that probably addresses ninety nine percent of artists out there. It definitely addresses me. Buy that book. Because you'll make more money once you have it than before. And of whatever price you pay, whether you buy it from me or someone else, I tell you one thing, you'll make it back in one sale. <laughs> you know, it's that simple.
1: Yeah. Uh, I can't I can't wait.
0: All right. Well go on, it was a pleasure and uh I really enjoyed it and I, I really like the fact that, you know, we we are talking about things sort of in a free manner, you know, without having uh, too much of a, of a of a list of things because I, I think that's when we get uh, the best content out there, you know, <laughs> most valuable.
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, a list co- c- can help uh, sometimes uh, just to make sure that we're not overlooking a- a- anything, but uh, I appreciate the fact that... Uh, you uh, spoke extemporaneously and uh, really uh, added value to the conversation.
0: Yeah, it, it's more artistic. And I think, you know, one of the things that artists have, which I think is a tremendous asset, but is not seen as an asset so much, is imagination and creativity. I use as much creativity in my marketing as I use in my artwork. And it's very, very important. as you can see during interviews, you know, I'm very creative, very imaginative. I'm not afraid at all of making mistakes. Um, and I think that's what has helped me a lot also. I tell people that every time I speak, I make a mistake because I mispronounce words. I make mistakes when I write, you know. I can't tell you how many people have emailed me and told me it's not Natalie and I, it's Natalie and me. And I I told Natalie says, what are you going to do? And I say, you know, it has become part of my personal style that I write, it is Natalie and I. You know. (laughs) I I had somebody... Get used to it. Basically, um, yeah, and, and I had somebody send me an anonymous letter saying, for Pete's sake, when are you going to stop saying Natalie and I? It's Natalie and me. No, no name, no address, no return address. Uh, all I know is it came from the East Coast. And uh, I thought, and Natalie says, what are you going to do? And I say, you know, I think that's it. This has sealed the deal. <laughs> it is Natalie and I forever. <laughs> you know, is it that important? I talk with Natalie, obviously, these are private matters, although now they are public matters. But, you know, is this person actually interested in taking a photograph? Or is it so important to correct me on my grammar? I mean, it's, and it's really not a matter of an absolute error. It's really a matter of a personal look at grammar, you know? Uh, it's like split infinitives. You know, it used to be that we couldn't split the infinitive. We couldn't say to boldly go, like they say in Star Trek. We had to say to go boldly. And then one time, I was driving to the Grand Canyon. I was taking a class in, class in journalism, and we had seen that. We had studied that. And I drove to the Grand Canyon, and I saw a road sign from the the Arizona Department of Transportation (AZDOT) it, it had split the infinitive on the sign, you know, and I fo- I forgot what it um, said exactly. Right. And I thought if it gets to the to the DOT, then I think it's safe to say we can all split the infinitive. And so I started splitting it, you know. I, I mean, who cares, you know? And so you know, if Alan Briot says Natalie and I enough, then I think it will become part of the vernacular. And I mean, why not? Why be subject to the whim of anybody that comes your way you know i mean if somebody really doesn't as the saying goes
1: you're preaching to the choir i'm i'm a writer i know all the correct forms but uh, at the end of the day what matters is that people understand what you mean yeah right If, if they don't understand what you mean then you know maybe you need to make it a little clearer but other than that it's rather clear. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, Natalie and me, the two of you.
0: It's clear. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do that interview and.
1: Uh, I'm glad we uh, made contact, and I'm uh, very, very much interested in uh, reading more. You've got me excited about uh, doing more to market my own work, and uh, that's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm going to do as soon as we get off the phone.
0: That sounds great, and I hope everybody else that listened to this interview is motivated to help themselves. That's what it is, really, uh, and market their own work.
1: Thank you
0: for that. You're welcome. Thank you, Gordon.